I have always been fascinated by God. Why do people all around the world worship their God or gods so differently? So I'm setting off on a journey to understand how God has helped us answer the biggest questions we have about our place in the universe. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 572, Expectations, Faith Crisis, and God Over Good with Luke Norsworthy. Now, what if you dedicated your life to a certain direction? You put all your eggs in one basket and then came to the stark realization that not only is the basket not really a basket, but maybe your eggs aren't even really eggs. Does that sound familiar at all to any of you out there? Luke Norsworthy is a Christian pastor who experienced a faith crisis when he saw that the Bible and his expectations of God didn't really stack up against what he was seeing around him in the real world. Well, I think it's at that point that you have to decide if you're going to just give up, you're going to walk away, or you're going to realize that this is an invitation to have a deeper, more authentic connection to who God is. Now, Luke recently wrote about his faith crisis in the book, God Over Good. Luke also runs a weekly podcast called Newsworthy with Norsworthy and is a seven on the Enneagram, just like me. So what's that you say? You don't know anything about the Enneagram? or Luke Norsworthy, or how, or why, anyone would possibly choose to keep believing in God after going through a faith crisis? Well, then you're in for a real treat, because that's what I discussed today with Luke Norsworthy, even though I was a little sick at the time. And that discussion starts now. Enjoy. Hello. Hello. Hey, how are Luke. you? Good. How are you? All right, good. Uh, do I have my video on? Start video. There we go. Hey, nice to see you. Nice to put a face to that voice I've been listening to for a while. <laughs> right on, man. Right on. Well, it's great to meet you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you too. So you feeling under, under the weather today? Yeah, I've got I've got some kind of a cold, you know, um, and throat stuff going right. on. You sound good. You don't sound bad. Oh, really? Thanks. I, I've sounded worse than that when I've been talking in public, so you'll be fine. Cool. So I, I think I told you in the email, I, I found out about the Enneagram maybe about a year ago. And then um, my wife got more interested into it a couple months ago. So we've been listening to things and then we started listening to Suzanne's podcast. Yeah. What's it called? My Enneagram journey? Mm, sure. That sounds right. I think that's what it is. I'm a seven. And you're a seven. Yes. And yes, so, really. so uh, that's how I heard you being interviewed by Suzanne as a seven. And I went, I like this guy. <laughs> and it sounds like we've got some, some things in common. Um, and this is a world as a, as a Christian pastor that I don't really know anything okay. about. Um, you know, I was raised Mormon. I went on a Mormon mission to Japan. Um, and then I started studying folklore for, um, in graduate school and my faith started unraveling. And so as, as I was reading your book, God over good, there, there were several things in there that I'm like, Oh yeah, I went through that kind of struggle. I went through that kind of struggle. Mm -hmm. 
And it's just so interesting to me that here you are as a Christian pastor that went through some kind of a faith crisis. You've mm-hmm. Humpty Dumpty's fallen apart. You've found a way to pick it up and put it back together again. And, and these are the kinds of conversations I'm having with my audience of Mormons that have been through something similar. So I thought, I, let's hear what Luke's got to say about this. And, and Right on. So t- tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, Luke, and, you know, like growing up as a Christian, you know, making the decision to become a pastor and all the schooling that that required. Um, yeah, I grew up, um, my dad was a psychologist and that's actually what I wanted to do when I went off to college. I went to college a little bit early and so I, I went to college when I was 16. And so I didn't really have as much life experience. And so I just thought, oh, I'm just going to do what dad did and it's going to be a psychologist. And then during my freshman year, it became clear to me that what I was most interested in studying was theology. And I figured, you know, what I'm most interested in is probably what I should find something to do vocationally. Even though there's no one in my family who was a pastor, didn't like have a close connection. I mean, we were part of churches. My whole family's part of church, but we weren't um, like super tight with a preacher, pastor or something like that. It was just something that I thought this, this is what I'm interested in doing. And then my sophomore year, I transferred to, from college in Arkansas to Texas. And I started preaching little country churches Mm-hmm. And I just fell in love with it and ended up getting an undergrad degree in um, uh, Christian ministry. That's what it's called. It was a, a, a religious school. And so Christian ministry, undergrad, and then I went to seminary there and got a master's of divinity. And that's my schooling. Yeah. And it's, it's so what, what's it like growing up as a Christian? Because, you know, like as, as, as Mormons, we always would kind of compare ourselves against Christians and say, oh, Christians have got it right up to here and here. And then uh-huh. we've got it right up, up to here, but nobody yeah. really knows. I mean, they don't really spend any time finding out what Christians really think or believe or what their life is like. So what yeah. was it for you growing up? Yeah, I, I think that's probably similar to my experience uh, with Mormonism is that we would just like cherry pick stuff that we thought, oh, we could use this and say that they're wrong right. by uh, <laughs> just this you know, thing that has no real context or background or, or like any humanity. Like I'm just going to, you know, just say whatever I want about it. Sure. Uh, anyway, so uh, my experience growing up, uh, it was it was a good experience. I mean, there's some people whose uh, religious upbringing causes them a lot of uh, damage and things that they'll have to unpack later. And I, I think thanks a lot to my my mom and dad. It was uh, a home in which religion was fostered in a healthy environment. That that God was always for you. That it was always loving. And whether you are Christian or not, or religious or not. I think the science shows us if, if the, the deity which you ascribe to is a hateful deity, then it makes you more of a hateful person. And mm. if the, the deity you ascribe to, what, true or not, uh, is a loving deity, it, it makes you more of a loving person. And so uh, regardless of the veracity of my faith, it was, uh, it was a, a loving, good environment for me to grow up in. Yeah. And, the, and, and so let's, let's, talk a little bit about some of the things that started shaking your, your faith in that, because I even, and I, and I've talked about this recently on the podcast, um, my podcast, Infants on Thrones, that even saying the word God now for me is so hard. And Mm -hmm. and I think you talked about that also in in your book, you have to reframe. What does it mean when you say it? What is, what does it mean when you hear other people talk about it? Um, Yeah. How how did that start with you? Yeah. Okay. Can I ask you a question before I start? Oh, sure. Yeah. Infants on on Thrones. I felt like this was like a Game of Thrones (laughs) podcast. When I first got the email, I was like, all right, let's do this. Uh, 
wall walkers, whatever we're going to talk about. The night, I don't know. But is it have anything to do with Game of Thrones? No, it doesn't have anything to do with Game of Thrones mm-hmm. except for the word Thrones. So the 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 name Infants on Thrones, um, the 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 Mormon founder Joseph Smith gave a sermon once called the King Follett Discourse, and King Follett's the name of a guy, and it was his funeral. So he's talking mm-hmm. at the funeral of King Follett, and in the course of the conversation or or the the sermon, at one point he looked out at these mothers that were in the congregation Mm -hmm. and saying in the context of a funeral, some of you mothers wonder um, whether you will see your children again, children that died in infancy. Mm. Will you ever have a chance to be with them again? And so he went and he speculated and he said that, that those children, those infants live on in the afterlife. You'll hold them again. And in fact, there are thousands upon thousands of infants enthroned in the heavens. Mm. And so that that's where we took our name infants on thrones, because we thought it was an interesting image. We thought as far as amateur podcasters that are talking about our own faith crisis, that we're kind of infants (laughs) in in a sense, we're still kind of making our way in the world, trying to figure things out. And this microphone that we talk into and broadcast out to people is in a sense, a throne that we're sitting upon. So, yeah, I I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of where it came from. Um, I like it. Started I like around it. the same time of Game of Thrones, but yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> okay. Not so, so. We're not going to do anything about the the dragons or anything. Okay, we could right if you want to. This is infants on Game of Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with dragons. We are the soul. That's your podcast, man. But I I love the name and uh, I love what you're, the plan word and I think the imagery. Uh, of, of saying something like that in a funeral is really beautiful. So, yeah. uh, well done picking the name. Okay, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to sidetrack your question, but no I do problem. have a podcast too, so sometimes I ask questions. And uh, love it. Happens. Okay, uh, question: uh, When did my face start kind of unraveling? And uh, okay, um, and may, and maybe like, because this was something that you said, it was kind of an offhanded comment in that interview that you did with um, Suzanne on her podcast. But you talked about how you do stand-up comedy and there's certain routines that you do for certain audiences. And so I, I, I'm assuming you're going to be kind of careful about what you say on this, but I don't want you to. I want you to just say what you think and say yeah. what you feel. But um, yeah, so if, if you could give me an indication of, of anything that you're saying that's like, well, this is how I would say it to this audience. This is how I'd say it to that audience. But yeah. it's got to be a tough position you know, to, honestly, I have- and to, to question stuff. Yeah, I, I've, I'm in an environment where I am very fortunate to have our, our leadership structure. We have elders, which I, I know you guys are familiar with that terminology as well. Sure, but we yeah. have uh, our board, our elders that I report to are, are people who have my back. They, they believe in what I'm doing. Cool. I, they knew about the book. They knew what I was saying in it, and they were supportive. And so I, I don't feel like I really need to... Um, uh, Pull any punches. <laughs> Yeah, I don't have to tiptoe awesome. around the stuff that I believe in the, the stand-up thing. I mean, that's more tongue-in-cheek of, um, I mean, there's some jokes that are a little bit cutting, more cutting in a comedy club than I would do in a, a, a church service, obviously, yeah. but that's basically it. I, you know, my face started to have issues when, when I was in grad school mm-hmm. and I started to realize the Bible didn't make as much sense as I thought it did, mm-hmm. and it, it didn't fit my expectations for what I think my sacred text should be. 
and it, there were contradictions or things that just like didn't line up. Yeah. Um, th- there's things in, you know, in the Jewish text that are just like, this is one account and there's another account afterwards that is clearly different account. Uh, like the most notable one, I think I mentioned in the book is there's a story about David doing a census, which is a sign of like unfaithfulness to God because it shows your trust and how many people you have. And so he knew it was wrong. Well, in First Samuel, it says that uh, God inspired David to do this sinful thing which, okay, God caused him to do this. Well, in Chronicles, which is a book that comes, it's written much later, according to most historians, it says that it was not God that tempted David to do this, but it was Satan who did, mm. which God and Satan, like those are like two pretty different entities. Like, right. you, you like that's not like an accidental, whoops, you know? Um, and, and so part of it was just like, okay, I had this expectation for how scripture is supposed to work, but it wasn't just like these intellectual inconsistencies. It was like the real life experiences of things that just didn't, didn't go the way I expected them. I, I had a roommate in college who was trying to figure out his sexual identity and mm-hmm. he was going to church service and thought, well, you know, I'll pray away the gay. And all of a sudden that I'll, I'll never have this orientation again. It was, you know, a job of mine that my first job was this train wreck. My first job out of seminary. Um, it was, you know, my brother's divorce. It was my mom's chronic illness. So there are intellectual issues, but there's also like real life suffering and it, all those things kind of culminated in, in, in a season in which my faith just didn't work. And so I, I can't say there was like just one thing, but it was, it was all of them. I, I like what you said about expectations, and, and you talk about that a lot in your book. There's a, there's a phrase, um, help me get it right, it's that, that um, expectations are future resentments, something along yeah. those lines. Pre-medi- premeditated premeditated. Yeah. 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 I think that comes from uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, to be honest. But uh, Mm -hmm. when, when you expect something to live into your picture of the future, you don't have control of that. And so when you say, okay, this, this road is going to take me from, from Dallas to Phoenix, what if the road doesn't go there? What if it goes North and South instead of East and West? Like I, I don't get to determine where the road goes yet. I can have an expectation for what my future is going to be like, what a relationship is going to be like. And then I did that with God and I don't get to dictate how spirituality unfolds. I don't know. Like I, I'm a part of the process of my experience, but I, I, I don't get that power, but I, I was functioning in a way that I thought I should. How, how, how are those expectations generated? Um, because I, I, I think about with, with Mormonism, like we've got, a and I say we. I'm I'm not Mormon anymore. I mean I was I raised Mormon, so I'm like wired that way. But I'm I'm not believing or practicing. But um, there's a there's a a prophet who you know leads and guides. He speaks for God to the church, and so what the prophet says or anything that comes out um, in our uh, Sunday manuals that we would use that goes through a correlation committee, <laughs> you know, like th- these are the things that set the expectations of what the nature of God is, what, mm-hmm. if you live this way, then these things are going to happen. And, and so I, I can understand from a Mormon perspective where there's like this prophet on earth that is representing God, how those expectations are set. How is it? Cause, cause, with the Christian tradition that you've been raised in, you don't really have that kind of top down. Like you mentioned, there's a group of elders that you report to, but how are those expectations usually mm-hmm. set? I think from, from my experience and the experience of the people that, that I've interacted with and had some sort of, you know, spiritual uh, directive role in their life, 
from what I've gathered, expectations accumulate like stains on a white couch. Like they, they just show up and you don't know exactly where they come from. I mean, yeah. there are some that are overt, which would be similar to what you just described of, okay, I went to school and someone taught me this and, you know, I read the Bible and I interpreted it this way. And so there's an expectation that develops from something that's like overtly yeah. formative. But I can, I think it's, it can be everything from the family you grew up in, your family of origin, your dad, the latest Morgan Freeman movie, mm-hmm. um, whatever mythology that you might've stumbled into as a child. And you think, you know, I'm gonna hold on to that because that can be a, a normative narrative for my life. And so they're all, I think they're just all around us. And we're constantly just in this uh, consumption of ideas. Uh, I don't know if you're uh, speaking of stand-up comedy. I don't know if you're a fan of stand-up, but there is, uh, uh, kind of like a, a scandal or whatever in the comedy world years ago when Dane Cook was kind of at the zenith of his career. And the, the issue was that he supposedly stole a joke from another comedian. I remember hearing about that, yeah. Yeah, and so it, it was Louis C.K. And obviously, you know, Louis had far more substantial problems in his <laughs> life than stealing someone's jokes. But it, Louis in his, uh, his sitcom depicted this scene in which he and Dane had this confrontation. And what Louis says to Dane is, I don't think that you saw me do those jokes and said, I'm going to tell those jokes too. I don't think there's a world where you're that stupid or that bad a guy. I, I, I do think though that you're like, you're like a machine of success. You're like a, like a rocket and you, and you're rocketing to the stars and your, and your engines are sucking stuff up. Stuff is getting sucked up in your engines, like birds and bugs and some of my jokes. I, I, I think you saw me do them. I know you saw me do them. And I think they just went in your brain. And I don't think you meant to do it. But I don't think you stopped yourself either. And that's why I never felt the need to help you not be hated by a lot of people. His assumption was that he didn't intentionally steal Louis' joke, but that maybe he heard it one time. It went in his head. He adapted to his own and he started to think it was his own. I, and I think that's how expectations happen. You don't maybe intentionally do this. It's just... It's around you, you, you consume them, and all of a sudden, you start to base things upon them. And that's the problem. So what, what were some of these expectations? You've mentioned a couple, a couple of them, but you had some expectations about the nature of God. You had some expectations about the way that your life would unfold mm-hmm. in certain ways. Yeah, yeah. I, I think expectations about how sacred tech is, text is supposed to work was front and center for me. Uh, I would also say that the expectations for how my life would go, like if I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to be a pastor. Therefore good things are always going to happen to me. Like that sort of, it's a watered down version of prosperity gospel. Like if I do the good things and God's going to make me financially prosper. Uh, Obviously I never thought to be rich, but I thought I would never get fired from my first job. And you know, expectations that, you know, churches would always function a certain capacity, that if these are God's people and God is good, then how come people in God's community don't always treat people well, don't always act good to each other? Uh, so those are some of the big ones. All right. And then, and then wh- where do you go once you, once you recognize that those expectations that you've built up for yourself about something as big and important as God, that it's wrong, what do you, what do, you do with that? Well, I think it's at that point that you have to decide if you're going to just give up, you're going to walk away, or you're going to realize that this is an invitation to have a deeper, more authentic connection to who God is. And so I, I tell this parable in the, in the book about uh, there's a man who grew up uh, on a beach, not like uh, Tom Hanks living in his Malibu beach house, right. but like Tom Hanks in Castaway. And he knew all along that water is bad. He just knew I'm not supposed to be around. So he builds a sandcastle to keep the water away. 
And every day he's trying to keep the water away. And, but the problem with water is it always seeps through and creates cracks and little holes in a sandcastle. So every day he's putting sand to try to keep the water out until one day a huge wave comes in and washes him out to sea. And the whole time he's trying to fight to get back to the, to the, to the land because he knows that the water is going to kill him. But eventually he f- comes to the surface and he realizes that the water is not trying to drown him, but to deliver him. And for me, like what I did is I tried to create this wall of certainty where I had God and life and the world figured out. And what I think in the midst of it was, was that God was not trying to destroy my faith, but I think God was actually the one delivering me from the certainty, the idol that I'd created of how I wanted God and the world and life to work. And I realized that actually this invitation to, to lose what I started with was not bad for my faith, but it was actually the, the, the necessary you know, conflict that I needed to move into this next stage of faith for me. But not everyone can do that. Some people, it, it doesn't go the way they want and they're just done with faith. Uh, but others of us have, have found a way that, you know, I can get washed out to sea, but then I can realize that the sea is not destroying me, but it's delivering me. Did you go through that? Um, did, did you ever touch or flirt with atheism at all as, I, as you were questioning God? I, I would probably choose... Uh, agnosticism over atheism sure but same i mean similar camp yeah oh definitely definitely i mean and and if i'm being quite honest like i i think it was um maybe it's dawkins who talked about the seven point scale mm-hmm. of certainty and he says you know i'm a 6.9 uh agnostic yeah. and I, there's a 0.1 percent that i could be wrong but 6.9 out of seven percent of me is certain that that there is no god and I, I would say I'm the opposite in the spectrum. Like I'm a 0.1 and I'm fairly certain that, that God exists, but there are moments that I'm always going to have questions. There are times that I wake up and go, is this all just like this, this great myth that has been perpetuated from one generation to the next to, to give meaning and, and, and identity to people, but it's not actually true. So I, I've, I probably will always have part of me that goes, yeah, you sure? Yeah, and, right. But, but, but at this point, I'm okay with that. Like I'm not afraid of, of there being a little bit of question uh, a little bit of uncertainty in, in my belief system. Yeah. That, that's interesting. You bring up Dawkins seven point scale. I, I, I came across that several years ago when I was still trying to figure out where I sit in my own mm-hmm. faith crisis. And I went away from that going, wow, I'm right where Dawkins is. I'm a six out of seven. And if I'm remembering it right, the, the six means that you think that it's most likely that there is no God to the point that you're not living your life as if there's any God watching or, you know, whatever that is. And I, and I just, in being honest with myself, I had to go, wow, I, I have started living my life as if there's not a God out there keeping track of me or watching. But it was hard for me to accept that being six because I wanted there to be, and there wasn't any room in that scale for what do people want? <laughs> what do you wish that there was? Um, and, um, and, and so I, you know, like I've, I've, been in that space pretty much, um, I don't know, 10 years maybe, but still, and then more recently started going in, okay, let me, let me try to understand or set different expectations around what God is or what God would be or what people are talking about when they're making reference to God. And I don't know if that's moving me away from a six on Dawkins scale. I may always be there because I, I think that pretty much anybody's when they're talking about God, they're really talking about themselves. They're talking about their projection on, on the world or their expectations or things like that. But there's such a value 
in looking at things as being bigger than ourselves that I, th- I feel like I've closed myself off from in a, in a sense with, with that. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you have any experience with that um, through your own journey. Luke. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously I'm probably like, like I said, the opposite in the spectrum. Otherwise it'd be pretty arduous to do my job right, if, I was, yeah. if I was on the sixth, the sixth side of the scale. Um, but yeah, I'm for you, like you always had maybe, maybe I'm overstepping, but as I understand what you're saying, like you always have that, like, I really would like to, right. And so, so maybe yeah. for you, that's, that's the polar opposite of me going, I really don't know. And so yeah. the, each of us is always going to have this, this nagging itch. And to some degree, I think our faith is the, the accumulation of the practices that we do. Mm-hmm. And if, if you live as though God doesn't exist, then what you will probably see is a world in which God is absent. And I, I think the, the Christian faith has always been one, not just of, this is what I think. It's not been just simply a mental um, assertion that you hold to, but it's a, a way of life, a way of practices. It's, it's a community that you, you enter into. And in and, and that way, even if your ideas don't match up to maybe what quote unquote Christian theology is supposed to be, mm-hmm. if your practices, if your, if your behavior and if your belonging fits into that, it, it can carry it through. And so I, I I'm not as concerned that someone is able to mentally ascend to all the quote unquote check marks as much as I'm concerned of like, what are the practices that you are doing that are dictating the kind of life that you want to live? And for me as a follower of Jesus, it means there are certain things that, that I always have to have present in my life. Like I, I have to pray like that is really important to me. I have to be surrounding Christian community of people who I can be transparent and honest with and, and people that I can name the demons that I have metaphorically speaking and things that, that pull me away from who I want to be. And if I was to always be able to check a box that says, I believe this to be true, but I didn't have any of those things. I think my faith would be in far more trouble than it is the other way around. Yeah. That, that, that sense of community is so important. Um, and having those people around you to, to reinforce the ways that you want to live your life. What, what, where do you fall on like literal versus metaphoric interpretations of scripture? And because this is where in, in my, it, it was difficult for me to leave Mormonism because there were so many things about it that I wanted to hold on to, but I feel like I, I felt like I couldn't because mm-hmm. my way of holding on to it would be a more metaphorical interpretation and other people around me wanted a, a literal interpretation to help bolster their faith. And I couldn't, I couldn't do that. Could do both. Yeah. Yeah. No, do no, I get you that. have things like that in, in your congregation? Yeah, I, I would say me personally, I think I, try to read the Bible literarily, which means there is some parts that I think is metaphor. I think it's, it's a poetic story. It's a, you know, the creation story for me, the historical veracity of being a six day actual creation, it's non-existent. Like that, that's not important to me. I I think the point of the story is that God created the world and it's good. Like that's, that's important to me. I think the second creation story, I'm saying these things, assuming that your audience has some familiarity with it. I, mm. I so, think so. Okay. They, they, they didn't, in Genesis chapter one, there's a different version than Genesis chapter two of the creation story. Yeah. So the first one is God speaks, creation happens. And then mm-hmm. day six, Adam and Eve are created. And day seven, God rests, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the second creation story of Genesis two, it's, you know, God creates Adam and then God creates all weird, like mixture of like animal planet slash the bachelor, where God tries to match him up with the animals and that doesn't work out. And so God 
makes him fall asleep and then rips out a, a lung or a, excuse me, a rib yeah. and create, thank you for the, the Christian pastor. Well done, man. <laughs> bonus points for that one. Um, but like, these are two different stories that I, I don't see a way to harmonize them in a, like an honest way, but it's, that doesn't bother me. Now, what I would say is some of those, especially those like old Testament texts, I can read them metaphorically and it doesn't do anything for my faith. The new Testament, like the life and the person of Jesus is the central one to me. And so I personally, I need Jesus to be a real person and I need that to be. And so some of the miracles and maybe some of those are exaggerated. Okay. That, that doesn't affect me, but in a lot of ways it hinges on the death, burial and resurrection. And so I'm a person who believes literally that Jesus died and he literally was rose again. Mm -hmm. Now, Everything else is a, a secondary thing to me that I'm okay if it's a metaphor. I'm okay if it's poetic. I'm okay if it's a myth that uh, has truth in it. Like the story of, of Jonah and the whale. Jonah is this prophet, runs away from God, throws in the water. Uh, a fish swallows him up. Stays there for three days. A big fish. A big fish. It's, yeah. it's, Not it's, a whale. It's a big fish. It's a fish. But you know, like, it's probably, let's be honest, it's probably a whale. But here's the thing. <laughs> The, the real story is that Jonah's heart was swallowed by hate. Like mm. the point of the story is that he hated his enemies. Yeah. That's the point. It's not like about a, a fish or a whale or, you know, whoever swallowed him, right? And like, his fear and avoidance of doing yeah. what it was that he was supposed to do. And, yeah. yeah. And I think, I think scripture wants us to read it literally because there's stuff in there that goes, we're trying to tell you a ridiculously funny story. Like the animals have sackcloth and ashes on them in Nineveh. Like they're, the text is clearly going, this is ridiculous. He mm-hmm. says three times at the end in chapter four, I would rather die than these people live. Like he's cursing because like a vine dies over him and it doesn't give him the sunlight. So the story itself, I think elicits the kind of reading that maybe some people want to want to run away from, but it, I think that's where I'm actually invited to. Um. If, if we can go back for a minute to the the creation story and the different versions of it, have, mm-hmm. have you come across in your studies, um, there, there's a book that I read several years ago called Who Wrote the Bible by Richard Friedman. And he talks about like the E source and the P source and the D source and the J source. And he's basically mm-hmm. saying that the, the version of the Old Testament that we have right now was written at different times by different people for different political motivations. And then at a later period, it was all put together because as the kingdoms were reuniting, they wanted to bring all these different traditions together. But that's why there's some contradictions in there because these were all developing from oral tradition and and that sort of thing. Does that type of... No, no, I, that's, a, that's a theory that uh, was originally presented by a guy named Velhausen, and it's okay. called the, uh, the New Document Hypothesis, or J-D-E-M-P. Yeah. Um, there's a Deuteronomic historian, there's the priestly source, and then there's two different names that God gets, Yahweh and Elohim, mm-hmm. J and E. And so what they've looked at is go, how come in some of these texts, God is called Yahweh, and in other texts, it's called Elohim? And how come you have these kind of redundant stories that, like I said, are somewhat contradictory? And so the theory is that you have these, you have an, a, a compiler, an editor who brings all these oral traditions, like you said, together. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, like that's honestly how I interpret um, those texts is, yeah. and I think it functions that way. And so you have Genesis one and Genesis two, Genesis one is probably priestly source because the climax of the first creation story is Sabbath, which is the day of worship. And so you have the priest who's like, Hey, the most important thing is that it builds all towards a worship service. And so, yeah, I think those things are helpful to, to, um, color and influence how we read the text. Obviously we've never found any historical evidence 
outside of like our text to go, this is exactly what happened. Sure. But um, my, my Old Testament and Hebrew professor uh, studied at Harvard and uh, like he looked exactly like you would expect someone who studies Hebrew at Harvard to yeah. look like. And he was like this brilliant guy. And so at one point he just joked around, he goes, you know, I spent my whole life uh, studying these, uh, these texts that um, none of us have actually found yet. Mm. And it all comes down to simply just loving people. Yeah. And like, that's like, that's my theology is like, yeah, like there's a lot of complex layers and, and questions to go through, but I think God is summed up in the person of Jesus. And Jesus says the main thing to do is you love God and love people. Yeah. And, and I, you know, my, my take on, on scripture these days is that that these, these, this is ancient wisdom traditions that have been passed down to us. And, and I think there's far too much, energy that's spent debating whether it's true or whether it's not true. It's the, the impact that it has, what it means, you know, as a, when I was studying folklore in graduate school, we learned that if a tradition doesn't have a, a function, something that is providing value to people, they'll stop doing it. And so Mm -hmm. if something is around, that means it's doing something, it's functioning, it's providing some value. So like focus on what that is. So these, these stories, whether, whether, you know, we want to say this is, there's evidence to support that it's true or not. These stories exist. The, the Bible exists. People are reading it. They're having, uh, it influenced their lives. Where is the value in it? That, that, those are the kinds of questions that I'm really interested in. And I think as a pastor, you've got to see that on a, on a daily basis with people. What, what, what's as a pastor, do you mainly like stand up and preach or are you more involved when people have problems in their lives? They bring it to you and ask you to help them with things. Tell me a little bit about what it's like being a pastor. Well, the way the size of the church affects kind of the function of what the preacher does. And I've been preacher of a church of 20 people when I was in college. I started a church that was hundred people. I, you know, preached at church a couple hundred people. The one I'm at now is is larger than that. And so a a lot of my interaction is me talking to people from a stage on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously like I interact with people, but uh, you know, there are a lot of other people who also are are charged and given the opportunity to do that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and serve our church that way. So, uh, you know, a lot of what I do is preaching, but uh, you know, one of the benefits I get to have as being a preacher, as someone who's, even if I don't like, I, I don't go to people's homes every night and I don't like our church is, you know, a thousand people there every Sunday. And yeah. I, so I don't know everyone's name, but often when I do interact with, with um, some, some people who are like not there every Sunday, but you know, comes you know, a couple times a, a quarter or something like that. When they do want to interact with me, it's because they're in, in the middle of a, of a crisis or they're yeah. having something substantial going on. And it is an absolute honor for me to kind of step into like the holy of holies of people's lives and right. to hear their real questions and hey you know this happened there was an affair and i'm trying to f- forgive and move forward what do you have for me or yeah. how do i pray after you know you know my, my kid passed away or how do i believe god is good if you know suicide takes place in my family and all these things are, are very like sacred to me to step into and in those places i don't think my job is to teach right like there's there are times in, when people are in crisis where sometimes they would say something that I don't think is really the best way to read the text or to, to view God, but sometimes it's the only thing they can do to get through the day. And sometimes in those situations, I don't want to be like Job's friends. There's a story in the Jewish text of a guy named Job who yep. like this, this poetic story of a guy who has everything, he loses everything and his friends show up and they say, this is why it happened because you did something wrong. 
Now, part of what they're expressing is an old understanding of Judaism of how if you're good, good things happen to you. Part of what the book of Job says is, yeah, our old understanding isn't actually working. And so we have to move forward and have a new way of viewing God. But the problem is the friends showed up in a time of crisis and they started teaching at him Mm. instead of being present with him. And one of the things I think is central to, you know, hospital visits or, or crisis counseling is to be present with someone, to be, to be a voice of love. And, you know, the Christian story says that, that Jesus, God in the flesh, steps into the darkness and so that we are not alone in the darkness. And so our job as Christians, especially as a you know, Christian leader, as a pastor, is to embody that sort of love with someone in the darkness. Yeah. Yeah. That's... That, I, I, I admire that a lot. Um, when um, you, you mentioned at some point, people will come to you and they'll have concerns. Uh, you know, why did this bad thing happen to me? Why is God, mm-hmm. God is good. And you talk about this in your book a lot too, is that the problem of evil and it's the problem that Job tackles as well. If, yep. if God is good, why are all of these bad things happening how how have you come to reconcile that question well i hate that i'm going to pitch the title of my book to you right now no but that is i what's want going you to happen. um but i think you have to choose god over good and i mean that's the the point of what i was trying to say in the book is that god is not always going to be good in, in my subjective definition of good i have a definition of what a good sacred text is going to look like that's not what i get um i, I have a picture of what i think a good god would do in like removing all adversity and suffering in the world, that's not the God that I've been presented with an option to serve. Like that's not it. And so what I have to choose is the God that has been realized according to my faith in the person of Jesus and what I experience of God now, that, that's what I have been offered. And so for me, it's choosing that over some sort of unrealistic picture that I, that's never going to come to fruition. And that's not easy. Like th- there's a, there's a loss. There's a morning that you have to go through to go, man, I, I think God should act a certain way. And there are things that I, I still think we would be better off if God acted the way I think God should act. Right. But that's not reality. And so, so there is this loss. There's this um, uh, terrible story in, in one of the Jewish uh, texts. There's a book called Judges, which is a book that kind of like, like spirals down and down. It's like the worst, most, it is literally Game of Thrones. Like it's that sort of <laughs> yeah. brutal violence. And there's one story that this guy says, I'm going to promise you, God, whatever I whatever greets me when I come home yeah. and it's, I'm going to sacrifice it to you. Now the Hebrew is a little bit um, ambiguous. So he might be referring to like the livestock, which would typically be like maybe the first thing in his courtyard based on kind of the way the J- Jewish uh, communities function or, or were established. Um, but it could have been a person, not sure. But what does happen is that it is his daughter who comes out to greet him. And so he thinks he's supposed to sacrifice his daughter. Now, terrible story. Uh, I think that's a myth. I don't think God would want that to happen. Um, if it did happen, literally, I think it's a misunderstanding of what God would want you to do. Like there's texts in the Bible, don't sacrifice your kids, which is sad that you have to include that in the Bible, but such, is, such were the times. But I think this is how I would read that and appropriate that story. What happens next is this guy's name is Jephthah. His daughter says, I don't have any children. So let me go spend three months in the wilderness to bewail my virginity. Right. Yeah. And she's having to mourn the loss that she never gets to be a mother, which for many of us being a parent is one of the best things that's ever happened to us. And so she has to go out in the wilderness for three months and mourn what she's never going to have. I think most of us in life have to go out into the wilderness and bemoan what we are never going to have. 
And some of us are never going to have the sort of intimacy in a relationship we want. Some of us are never going to have the relationship with God that we want. Some of us are never going to have just the life in general that we want. And what we have to do is to mourn the loss of what we're never going to get so that we can finally accept what we do have in front of us. Yeah. <laughs> I could do a lot with that story, Luke. Um, yeah, but, but then, but then I'm just exposing my expectations, right? You know, like, so my expect, my, my expectations in a response to that story would be why, why can't uh, Japheth just say, yeah, I, you don't, I'm not going to kill you. That's the right answer. Like you, <laughs> you never should kill your kids. Like right. that's always you know, the like, right answer. You don't have to mourn your virginity. You don't, you don't, ha- you know, like, so, and, and so then the, then the, the message of the story could be like, yes, there's, there are certain things like intimacy in a relationship that you may never have, but there are also, you can also be the, the architect of the life that you live. And if you're in a relationship that doesn't have intimacy or there's actually like some abuse and something like that, that doesn't mean that you have to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of course. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's where it, yeah, yeah. I get with the story. Get, and, and I think that's why, well, I think what the book of judges is trying to do is trying to show you like, Hey, stuff is really crappy here mm-hmm. and we need another system of government. And so our judges, which are more like, um, half soldier, half like political figure, like these sort of judges aren't working. We need a King. That's kind of what the book of judges is saying. Like, this is how bad things are getting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what, like when you function that way, where you go, you know, uh, I think I got to kill my kid. Like that's a sign that things are bad. And yeah. there are times that if that's happening, you need to go like, this isn't working. We need something different. We need another form of leadership in our life. If you're thinking that's the yeah. best option. Yeah. I, I, and I think my, my takeaway from, from your book was um, letting go of your expectations of who or what God should be for you and open yourself up to receiving whatever life brings you and being grateful for whatever life brings you, finding the benefit in whatever life uh, brings you. And that is choosing God over good because it's, it's your expectation, your expectations that God should always be good. doesn't match up with life and lived experience. So you're always going to be disappointed if you think that God is only good or that, you know, is, is that a a correct summary? I think you got it. Yeah. 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 I would, I would retweet that. That's good. (laughs) That that garbled mess that I just gave you there. No, but but that's, but that's what I'm trying to say. You're exactly right. Yeah. Cool. Um, so we, we've got a couple of minutes left. Um, and and the way that I, yeah, I do want to talk about the Enneagram. I want to know how, how did you get interested in the Enneagram and, and what is it, how does it help in your understanding of yourself and God and others around you that you're working with? Uh, have your listeners been like Enneagram 101? Like they know what it is? I've given them a little bit of, of Enneagram okay. background. Yeah. And I've done that mainly on Patreon. For, so for those of you who are listening to this, not through Patreon, let me give you a quick overview of the Enneagram. A- Enneagram means nine written things. I mean, Ennea is nine. Gram is like something that's written or drawn. So Enneagram means nine things. It's nine different personality types. It's actually much more complicated than that. But in the next few minutes, I'm going to give you some excerpts from the Liturgist podcast. It's their episode 37 on the Enneagram. And they go through really briefly here with these excerpts 
what each of these nine types stand for. And if you're interested in finding out more about the Enneagram and you want to do it with Infants on Thrones, come support us on Patreon because we're doing a lot of Enneagram stuff on Patreon right now. It's kind of fun. Anyway, here is uh, some excerpts from the Liturgist podcast to give you an overview of the nine types of the Enneagram. Ones on the Enneagram are uh, called the perfectionist or the reformer, and they literally see everything in terms of how it could be improved, how it could be better. Twos are helpers, and their way of seeing is based on sensing and meeting the needs of other people. Threes are called the achiever. Uh, their need is to succeed or to appear uh, like, a, like a success. You know, they just want to project this image of being this performer who just is a production machine. What matters to threes is, is that they avoid failure at all costs. Fours are people who are wedded to uh, authenticity and they're a little disappointed I think in the sellout from all of us to kind of try to be like each other they really desire to have that unique flavor that everybody has to offer they're people who are often called the romantic some people say that they have a need to be special or to be unique I would say that I'm coming to believe they have a need to be known. Fives are in the mentally centered triad or the head triad of the Enneagram with sixes and sevens. And they are called the observer uh, or the investigator. They need space and they need to perceive. Um, And our definition of perceive would be to fully understand things. The sixes are called either the loyalists or often the devil's advocates. Um, Sixes um, have a deep need to feel secure. They are fearful people when they tend to get real. The fear that they experience actually is probably closer to anxiety. Um, That's sort of the dominant emotion that kind of runs, that kind of buzzes like a, you know, like one of those like a fluorescent light that's gone bad in the background. You know, it's just this buzz of of anxiety that runs at a low level or in spikes from time to time. Sevens, uh, they are sometimes called the epicures. Sometimes we like to call them the enthusiasts. Um, every day to a seven is like a school snow day. They just have this remarkable, sunny, incredible, enthusiastic, optimistic, you know, the uh, unlimited possibilities of life. They, they are um, just some of the most winsome, funny, great storytellers. They are always planning the great next adventure. The eights uh, are characterized by this tremendous intensity. Uh, they just are... Uh, let me give you an example of this. When an eight walks into the room... You feel uh, almost like the song Hail to the Chief should come on. You, you can feel this incredible energy radiating from that person. And it's, it's really intensity, but what people often experience it as is anger. It's like this feeling that this person wants you to submit to them. It's this feeling that uh, this person has come into the space 
and it has has just colonized it, almost annexed it with this tremendously big presence. Nines are the called the peacemakers or the mediators. They're they have a real need to avoid conflict, and they need to avoid conflict at all costs, like because conflict can lead to disconnection in relationships, and the last thing they want is to feel disconnected from from uh, the people they love or just from from people in general. Have your listeners been like? Enneagram 101, like they know what it is. I've given them a little bit of, of Enneagram okay. background. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. So let's go forward with that. Uh, I was introduced by a Franciscan priest named Richard Rohr. Have you ever heard of Richard Rohr? I've, I've heard of Richard Rohr. Yeah. But I, I haven't read any so of this stuff. But. He's one of the early kind of religious leaders to talk about the Enneagram in the United States. And he actually was Suzanne Stabile's uh, teacher. Mentor, yeah. Yeah. Right. And so I was going out to Albuquerque, New Mexico to do an interview with him. And I thought, Hey, he has a book on the Enneagram. Let me, let me kind of scan this one before I jump into the actual book at hand. And it's fascinating. So I talked to him a little bit about it. And How long ago was this? Uh, three, five, five or six years ago, I think. Okay. All right. It, maybe, I don't know, maybe at least, at least four Five, whatever it doesn't matter right. i don't think anyone's going to get on the, the computer and go let's figure out exactly what year this was no i'm just i'm just curious because for me it's been really recent and so i'm just try, trying to see how long you've been in it so it's been yeah that long and then uh one of my friends was friends with uh, suzanne stabile uh ian cron who wrote uh a book with suzanne was also a friend of mine so because of the podcast and uh how long Do i you know janna doing- reese I do not know. Okay. J- Jana Reese edited that book for Suzanne and then she wrote the study guide for the path. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, and, and Jana's in the, the ex Mormon community and I know Jana. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. Uh, I mean, if you're a friend of Suzanne, then I probably like you. So she's, <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we became friends, Suzanne. Um, there's a debate over what happened, but this is the true story that uh, one of my friends that gave her my number, she calls me up and says, Luke, I want to do nine podcast episodes with you. And I was like, Oh, wow. I don't know you. This is kind of overwhelming. And, um, long story short, we became good friends. Uh, she's actually going to be at our church in uh, two weeks and we're doing, uh, like an Enneagram and parenting, uh, event. And to answer your question, my life, my marriage, my faith, uh, my parenting, all of this is substantially improved because of the Enneagram. It's given me a lens to understand myself. It's, It's caused me to uh, see people who are different from us sevens who are not always optimistic and, and can't spin things positively. And I don't think of them as less than me. And when I see myself avoiding and running from pain, I go, okay, Luke, this is not where you need to be. Stay here. Um, it's given me an ability to understand my wife. Who's a one on the Enneagram in a way that I wouldn't have before. It's given me grace for my coworkers. It's the people I work with. I, my whole staff has been taught the Enneagram. Uh, many of my parishioners have gone through Suzanne's training. She's done conferences here before. So I'm, I'm all in on the Enneagram. Yeah. As, but like, I mean, in terms as a great tool, like I don't hold it to be as like as important as my like faith in Jesus, but it is a great, a great tool. What, what number do you think Jesus is on the Enneagram? A seven, of course. Of I mean, course, he's a seven. Seven is kind of the perfect number, isn't it? In, yeah, I mean, all the like so. numerology and stuff. It always goes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's perfect. Seven, You're definitely perfect. not a six. 
Yeah, exactly. No, I, <laughs> what is Jesus? That's a great, that's a Suzanne question. I, I think in a lot of ways he, <laughs> but here's the thing. I think each number represents a facet of the image of God. Right. I think there's something about God in, in every single number. And so Jesus being the fullness of humanity, I think Jesus is probably in some ways like the, like the perfect Enneagram number, like as in he's fully integrated in each different facet of the divine. Yeah. Yeah. The, I, I went to a workshop um, uh, maybe a week or two ago and, and the way that um, Carol, who I'm, I'm going to be interviewing uh, next week, the way that she presented it, she, she talked about how when we're born into this world, we're, we're kind of like a blank slate, you know, like from the moment of conception, we're a blank slate. And that from that point, we grow into whatever it is that we grow into. And we've got like these neural pathways, we develop habits and that sort of thing. And and the way she likes to think about the Enneagram is that when we're at that point of a blank slate, we kind of have all possibilities uh, ahead of us. We could, we could embody all of those things. So maybe like you're, how you were saying about, about Jesus or God as representing all of the possibilities of Hmm. of life or humanity. And then we kind of go in a certain certain way we have certain inclinations um but uh yeah i I've, I've liked how the enneagram helps me see myself my wife how it helps what, me what's understand your, what's that what's your wife on the enneagram she's a two okay um, at, at, at first we thought she was a six well the first time i heard it i thought she was a two and then she thought maybe she was a six for a while and then we went back mm-hmm. to two um and, how do you that, do, and that's how, how do you do dealing with uh, the feelings I, I think that for me, so sevens, sevens tend to avoid feelings. And I think sevens tend to think that they do better with feelings than they actually do. So it's, it might be kind of hard for two sevens to talk about how we do about feelings. Well, it, but, did you hear, did you hear your answer? I said, how do you do with the feelings? And you go, well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Think. There we go. Yeah. I That's think. a typical yeah. seven move that we all do. Like I'm going right. to think about it. I'm not going to feel about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I've had, I've had a lot of experiences in my life where I've had to kind of be in the feelings and I haven't been able to uh, escape from them quite as easily. So I think I've spent more times in, um, doing shadow work or whatever you want to call it, just, just by virtue of, of, uh, you know, going through a divorce, going through faith crisis, mm-hmm. having, uh, you know, losing a job. Um, those, mm-hmm. those kinds of times in life where as a seven, you probably just want to put a happy face on it and get out of those spaces as quickly as you can. Um, and I, I think I've been compelled in ways. We'll, we'll say that God's compelled me in ways to stay in that space because there's things that I need to learn. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of how I I see it. But but I and I I like that I have this new awareness where I can kind of test it and go. All right, let's see how do I do with the feelings. It's helped me with my wife because as a, as a, a two where feelings are really important to her, that's how she um, processes the world when there's a disconnect between the two of us, we can, we can talk about it. And You're right past. I've had, I've had issues with uh, being in a relationship with twos mm-hmm. and my my mom's an eight, my brother's an eight, my dad's a seven. And so my family, uh, their stances in the Enneagram. So there's the withdrawn stance, which is the nine, the five and the four. There's the dependent stance, which is the one, two and the six. And then you have the aggressive, which is the, uh, the eight, seven and the three. And yeah. so my family, we're all aggressive. We'll get in your face. Like yeah. I, I will make fun of you to become friends with you. I yeah. will critique what you have to say as a way to show you that I care about you. Right. My mother-in-law is a two. And so she's very empathetic and she cares about feelings. She's 
always caring about other people. And so there've been times that not her, but, but other twos when like, they want to talk about feelings and be like really emotional. I'm like, I can't, I can't do this. Like I, I, I cannot be your friend. Like this is just, <laughs> it's not going to work. Yeah. And so it's taken me like, like, okay, this is what's happening. Understand this go like the shadow work, like you described, go where you don't want to go. So uh, I, I'm glad that uh, you and your two wife are getting along. Good for you. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, uh, it's, it's new. And, and, and so then the next thing is we want to figure out what our kids are and, you know, we, we have a blended family. So she's got her, her two daughters. I've got my three kids and trying to make that all work. Um, yeah. What are I, their ages? So my oldest, my oldest is 22. And, uh, so I've got a 22 year old, an 18 year old and a 15 year old. And then Krista's oldest is 15 and youngest is nine. Okay. We've got a, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. And and they're old enough where, especially the older ones that they really can identify as their number. And cause they say you're supposed to be around like 20 before you really know who you are. Yeah. Um, On the other hand, my oldest daughter, I, we've, she has heard my wife and I talk so much about the Enneagram that she knows it's the numbers and what it is. Mm-hmm. And she says, what am, what's my number? And we will never tell her, but she is 100% an Enneagram number one. Okay. And so we treat her different. I think my middle daughter's probably, she's, um, uh, she's how did, how did you come to that conclusion? How did, how did you recognize that she was a one? Well, okay. My wife is a one as well. And mm-hmm. so that's a little background. Uh, it just, she's always been more responsible than us and mm. she uh, or or than me which oh is that's the, right I, I think i heard you talk about how she'll come and wake you up but but <laughs> she is for school yeah, yeah exactly but the, the one of the stereotypical things about the one is the the critical voice right and and i know my, my oldest daughter has that um i see it in her i hear it in her i hear it in the way that she talks about herself and so for me as a dad i want to step in and go you need to know that you're loved that you're valued you you are cherished um, in a way that my daughter, my middle daughter is probably uh, a seven who is actually seven years old. Uh, that's not what she needs to hear as much. Like I tell her that all the time too, but it doesn't mean as much to her as it does to my oldest. Now getting my middle daughter to deal with her feelings and talk about when she's sad, like she will reframe, jump, act cute, do something funny to get away from them. And for her, I need to teach her, you don't have to run. Yeah. You can sit in this together. I'm not going to make you do it a whole bunch, but we will do this for a few seconds. Do, do you find that, um, so as, as a seven in times of stress, you'll kind of take on characteristics of a one as a seven in times of, you know, comfort or security, you kind of act more like a five. Do, yeah. do you feel like that experience helps you relate to your daughter? Who's a one more that you're able to kind of see the world through her eyes a little bit differently from having some experience? Yeah. yeah I, I've always been sympathetic of ones, uh, because I, I function, in one space a lot. And I've tried to say this because I like, I'm just, uh, you know, uh, trying to be productive, but, um, Ian and Suzanne have been like, no, I, I just think you're kind of stressed. But, uh, yeah. so I, I feel like I have a little taste of that and I have a, uh, a voyeur's experience with the critical voice. And I, I use that as, uh, definitely a way to foster, uh, compassion, not just for her, but also for my wife, who is a one. And yeah. uh, it helps Lindsay and I, because Lindsay will go, you're in your one space. Don't act like that. It's not good. Don't stay here. Go back. And it, it's an, it, it really is. Uh, so like if you're really being down on yourself or something that, that self-critic is wagging its finger at you. Yeah. I have this obsessive uh, thing with routines I eat the same thing. If I don't get everything off my check 
check mark. Uh, I have multiple whiteboards with check marks that are required every day. Like, it's not like I did bad at work. It's like, I am bad. Mm. And so I, I know that's not a healthy thing for me. And uh, the invitation is to, to see that even if things aren't perfect, that doesn't change who you are. And that's kind of a counter to a seven, right? Because yeah. sevens typically don't like the routines. Typically, we'll find routines kind of boring. Yeah, that's um, Ian Cron, who, like I said, wrote uh, the book with Suzanne, her, their first one together um, on the Enneagram. Uh, yeah, he's, look, you, you've, like, I'm in a high stress, like, pastor of a big church, you know, I've, yeah. I, I have another book I'm turning in in two weeks. I've got a podcast I run. Um, and so I've got a handful of things on my plate. And for me, I think it's, I want to do so much that I want to maximize every bit of life. So I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I get my work in. I make sure I get my, my book writing done. I'm going to make sure I get my sermon right now. Make sure I'm going to interact with people. I'll make sure I can do my leadership stuff, get, get my podcast organized. And it, I, in some way there's like this gluttonous desire to have it all. Right. Um, yeah. But another part is it, it can turn. It can and, turn. Th- and that helps you manage it. To do all the yeah, things you it, want to do, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And I feel like it's helped me get a lot of things done. And I feel like it's helped me. Uh, I have this to-do list. I'm going to show you. This is terrible for a podcast. But I have this uh, check. This is my uh, sermon <laughs> writing schedule. Yeah. And I literally am too far ahead. There's, there's supposed to be like these checks are supposed to stop right here. Uh-huh. But I have sermons 10 weeks out that are way too far done. Like I, I need to stop that. Um, I, that's, I, I find that admirable. I, I, I get a lot of stress from not planning that far yeah. ahead. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's um, the Enneagram. It gives you kind of wisdom into when you're struggling and when you're healthy. And yeah, I'm, I'm, so you have an Enneagram person coming on next week and doing like an Enneagram tutorial for. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Carol, who is the one that, um, that uh, walked me through that, that presentation. It was like a eight hour, you know, we, we got there at like, nine in the morning, we left at five in the afternoon. So we're not going to cram all of that into, uh, you know, an hour, hour and a half podcast, but she'll talk about uh, her experience with it and give an overview. Yeah. The thing about the the Enneagram, it's like this, uh, it's like an accordion where you can see a little small bit of it. And then every time you pull it out, like there's, there's more substance to it. And I've done, you know, Suzanne and Ian did their, their podcast at my church. They, they flew down to Austin and we did 12 episodes together. I've done conferences with Suzanne here. I've done uh, live events with them. And, and so I've done a handful of interviews with other Enneagram experts, but I'm still like learning so much. Yeah. Like still so many layers. I'm going, wow, I, I, I didn't even realize this. And it's so helpful. Well, Suzanne's so impressive. I'd, I'd like to interview her at some point too, but uh, oh. she just like her 30 years experience, it seems to come so secondhand, second nature to her. And, you know, I, I think the, the hesitation that anybody has with any kind of personality typing thing is that, you know, don't pigeonhole me. Don't tell me that I'm this certain way because there's mm-hmm. differences, there's variety. And I, I love how the Enneagram addresses yep. that. And, you know, it's, I, I think... Um, people usually talk about colors, how there's not like just a certain yep. shade of blue, but there's multiple shades of blue and there's multiple mm-hmm. shades of a seven or, you know, that yep. sort of thing. And, yep. and what's really interesting to me is when you start matching that with faith and matching it with like expectations of God or expectations of life, how all of that gets colored through by, you know, through your Enneagram type, your personality type. And, um, yep. That that's that's an interesting conversation. Suzanne did something like that another time. Yeah, Suzanne did this outstanding riff where she did why each number 
uh, goes to, to mystery. And mm-hmm. she didn't like how everyone goes to mystery in, in their own different way and, and their experience with it. She did it on a podcast on hers. Actually, the, the episode it I was did. This, yeah, it was part two of the one that she interviewed with you yes. where you felt like she, she set you up as a trick question. So what numbers on the Enneagram? You've done a lot of Enneagram work. What numbers on the Enneagram do you think live best with mystery? I mean, that's a great question that I should have asked you because you're going to have a better answer. I can riff about what I would guess. Well, you need Nobody's... to riff because we're not switching places. This is my podcast. All right. <laughs> All right, Coach. Um, I mean, you'd like to think that uh, the fours wanting to be authentic and, and kind of be willing to step in that space would, would almost come somewhat naturally. I would assume fours might be comfortable there. Uh, I would imagine a one, uh, one in their details would probably be uh, pretty abhorrent to that sort of mystery because they want everything in the box. Uh, fives would probably feel pretty paralyzed because they can't figure it out with enough information. Look how good you're doing. Uh, a nine would be able to see both sides of things. And so they could see how maybe it's a little bit this, a little bit that. Um, an eight's not going to stop to think about it enough. Uh, so they're just going to put an action plan together. Um, I mean, your threes, I don't know. Maybe if they're the right environment where everyone's saying that, that's what they'll say too. Um, again, they're not going to feel anything. I mean, we're kindred spirits. Uh, I, I want to know your answer to that question. I think none of us do well with mystery. Hmm. And so what I'm trying to lead us all to... Conan, you set up that whole question knowing the answer was wrong. <laughs> I didn't know how you were going to answer. I thought and we were I, it wasn't a setup. <laughs> what I uh, am leading us all to is we don't, we don't do well with mystery. And I think the next step after doing well with doubt is to be able to do well with mystery. I think there's always another step and another level and another step and another level. And I think we, have, we are living in a time that offers so many plausible answers. We don't even really know if they're the answers or not. They're plausible, so we take them. And I think we take them so readily because we can't live with mystery. And I think we can't live with mystery because we weren't taught to. And I think an inability to live with mystery is what causes us to have expectations of God. So I think um, I would probably walk through all nine numbers. So I'm going to do that real quick about why it's hard for them to live with mystery. So I think it's hard for ones to live with mystery because they have to be right or correct. And they have to be right or correct because they don't think they're good. So they lean too heavily into their correctness because they don't think that they think they are, they are flawed in some way, and the way they make up for that is by being right or being correct. I think twos can't live with mystery because they're they are so threatened by loss in relationship. So twos in that space of threat can't wait for things to play out relationally. They try to make things play out. They go after answers. They go after what they want because they can't live with the threat of the mystery of not knowing how things are going to work out. And start noticing now that the answers to how we can't live with mystery are an exact measure almost of how much faith we don't have. Like it, it, mystery requires believing in something bigger than you that's happening beyond you, and we can't do that, right? 
threes, uh, I think, struggle to live with mystery only when it blocks a goal or their effectiveness or their efficiency or them bringing to fruition what they're trying to create. And otherwise, they're dismissive of mystery. It's like, if I don't need to know the answer, I don't care what the answer is. For fours, adding on to what I said about fours' ability to bear witness to pain, which looks like they can live with mystery, I think fours create mystery around themselves and around their behavior in order to level what they consider to be a, an unlevel playing field. And so if you can create this illusion of things that doesn't exactly define you, then as a four, maybe you can get people to listen to you long enough to know you, to, to really want to know you. Fives, don't live with mystery. Well, they don't talk about it and they don't accept it. They just research until they know what the answer is or they take the question off the table. They don't live with mystery. Sixes are drowning in their inability to handle mystery. And they're drowning in that inability to handle mystery in a culture where what keeps balance at an arm's length from sixes is all of this anxiety that's manufactured by the culture to make us afraid. Sevens create mystery in order to not have to deal with it. Eights make up answers, and eights believe that they can affect reality. So if something's mysterious and they can't figure out the answer, they give an answer. And then they kind of expect you to buy it. It's like this answer's as good as any, so we're going to go with this. And nines, they are so intent on not being affected by life, on being unaffected by life is a better way of saying that. They're so intent on maintaining their peace and not having that be interrupted by the things that happen in life that they use mystery to protect themselves. Yeah, Suzanne did this outstanding riff where she did why each number uh, goes to, to mystery. And mm-hmm. she did a riff like how everyone goes to mystery in, in their own different way and, and their experience with it. She did it on a podcast uh, on hers. Actually, the, the episode it I was did. This, was, yeah, it was part two of the one that she interviewed with you yes. where you felt like she, she set you up as a trick question. Yeah, because she, I mean, <laughs> and she was so brilliant. But it's, yeah. it's, the Enneagram is this lens that, you see the world differently. And like, I, I love the metaphor about, yeah, there are like a million blues out there, but mm-hmm. it's still blue. Like the essence is still blue. Um, my dad, who's a psychologist, uh, had some skepticism about this instrument Yeah. until he learned the way that they create space for all the different aspects of sevenness. And my dad's a seven as well, like I said, but he functions as a five. Mm-hmm. And he's also you know, his, his dissertation was in chronic pain. My mom said chronic pain for much of my adult lifetime. Uh, that's who he works with. He was a professor as well. And his private practice with people who are suffering. Uh, he survived cancer himself. And so you see this person who has matured over the years and now occupies that healthy five space yeah. all the time. Like he still has sevenness in him. Uh, he, he will run from pain with the best of them, but now he resides like in this healthy space of where, 
like five or sevens when they function higher, like you said earlier, go to five space. And it's, it, it's super helpful. Yeah. That, that's where I thought I was when I first heard the, the guys first heard the liturgist podcast on uh, the Enneagram. And I thought, Oh yeah, I'm a five because I like to spend time on my own. I, you know, every exchange is giving some kind of energy out and I need to recharge that. I'm an investigator. I like to look up things I like to understand and research and all that. Um, but I think that's, that's just a place that I go from my sevenhood in times where I'm feeling more secure or whatever. So yeah, I, I've really enjoyed the Enneagram. Uh, yeah, good for you, man. Find more about it, but and and thank you, Luke, for coming on. And uh, my pleasure. Uh, yeah, and and I'll encourage my listeners to to go out and uh, check out your book, Good Over God. Close. And, you almost uh, got it. Oh, you almost God, got God it. over good. Damn. Yes, there you go. Dang it. Dang it. Okay. You had a, such a good thumbnail earlier, so we'll just remind people. <laughs> I can I can I can edit it out and put anything in. I'm a little wizard when it comes to editing stuff. Good for you, good for you, man. Well, thank you for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Luke. You're good at this. I, I I always respect a podcaster who is a good conversationalist. So, well, appreciate it. Okay, thanks, man. All right, dude. Talk to you later. Hi. This is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Dashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. If you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.